Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we finish discussing the Best Picture nominees from the 87th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right, down to the final four, baby. Hey, we're going to do two rounds in this episode. It's pretty exciting. It's all come down to this. Yes, you're left with our semifinal and our final. Should we just dive right in? Do we need to do any housekeeping? Yeah, I mean, let's not recap. You could find out what the movies that we've already discarded are if you would just listen to the first two episodes. <laughs> okay, so our final four, our last two matchups before the final final. So let's just get back into it and tell people what they are. First matchup, we have our eight seed. That's pretty far for an eight seed to make it, if I'm being honest. The Grand Budapest Hotel, a dramedy about the concierge of an Eastern European hotel and his lobby boy. Again, starring Ray Fiennes, Tony Rivolori, Adrian Brody, Ed Norton, Saoirse Ronan, Willem Dafoe. Written and directed by Wes Anderson, nominated for nine Academy Awards. It won four of them. Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. That's up against our number seven seed, Guardians of the Galaxy, a sci-fi action comedy about a ragtag group of losers who saved the galaxy. Stars Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Vin Diesel, and Bradley Cooper. It's directed by James Gunn, written by James Gunn and Nicole Perlman, nominated for two, one, zero. All right. On the count of three, we will reveal which wins this round. One, two, three. Grand Grand Budapest. Yay, we're back, baby. Okay. Okay. What's our next semi? Our next semi is our six seed. Nothing, by the way, higher than four has made it into this final four, so... Interesting. Our six seed, Snowpiercer, a science fiction action satire about the last survivors of a catastrophic climate change event who live on a self-contained train. It stars Chris Evans, Tilda Swinton, Song Kang-ho, directed by Bong Joon-ho, written by Bong Joon-ho and Kelly Masterson. It was nominated for zero Academy Awards. And then that's up against our fourth seed, our highest ranking film in the final, Nightcrawler, a black comedy slash psychological thriller about the world of freelance news videographers. Stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed, and Rene Russo. Directed and written by Dan Gilroy, nominated for one, it won zero. Boy, oh boy. Of these four final four, by the way, only one of them won any awards. (laughs) That's true. We'll find out if that's meaningful for our final result. Okay. okay but on the, on the count of three, we will reveal our winner for this semi. Snowpiercer versus Nightcrawler. Ready? One, two, three. Night Nightcrawler. Yay. Oh, my God. We're in agreement again. Okay. <laughs> little hiccup. A little hiccup in the quarters, but we're back on track. Back on track in the final four, baby. So that means we will start off by talking about Guardians and Snowpiercer, and then we will loop back around for the final matchup. Between Grand Budapest versus hitters. Nightcrawler. Hey, boy. It's hard to get two more tonally different films than those two. Can't wait for that discussion. Okay. Let's start by talking about Guardians yes, of let's. the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy is a Marvel movie. It is in the MCU. If folks don't remember, it's the first time the MCU went cosmic. We're out yeah, in space. man. We left Earth. It was crazy. 
we start off on a young boy whose mother dies of cancer. Mm. It's very sad. It is sad. As he is fleeing the hospital following her death, he is abducted by aliens. Cut to the future. We are reintroduced to this character, Peter Quill, as he is trying to steal a MacGuffin from a planet. Mm -hmm. I would like to loop back around to this because I have a lot of feelings about his character introduction. Me too. Anyway. (laughs) Everyone is after this MacGuffin, of course. There is bad guy Ronan the Accuser who needs to get the MacGuffin for another guy. So the other guy will destroy a planet for him. That other guy, Thanos, you may have heard of him. He was lesser known back in Guardians of the Galaxy days. I send his two daughters, Gamora and Nebula, to assist Ronan in retrieving this MacGuffin. And so because they are not able to get it, because... Star-Lord gets it. They send Gamora after it. Meanwhile, the folks that Peter Quill generally works with, the Ravengers, have put a bounty out on his head because he stole it out from under them. And as he's going to turn in the MacGuffin to get the reward to bounty hunters, Rocket Raccoon, who is a little raccoon man, (laughs) and Groot, who is a big tree man, (laughs) try to capture him so they can get the bounty reward. They have a fight in a plaza and they are all captured by the police. They are sent to a prison where they meet the final member of their merry band, Drax the Destroyer, played by Dave Bautista, who is there and wants to kill Gamora because Thanos killed his family. So as revenge, he wants to kill Thanos' family. Mm -hmm. They all escape the prison with the MacGuffin. They take it to a guy they think they can sell it to, the Collector. They learn it is one of the Infinity Stones. It is the Power Stone. And they decide like, oh, we can't just leave this with this guy. So they want to take it to Xandar, which is the planet they initially got captured on, but they have a strong police force and they feel they could protect it. As they're trying to do that, they're then like a confluence of events. Peter and Gamora get captured by the Ravagers again. Ronan shows up and he beats Drax into a pulp. So now their team is sort of split apart. Mm -hmm. They are able to come back together, warn Xandar that Ronan has the the power stone. He's coming for them. And then they save Xandar together. And the galaxy. Uh, And the galaxy, because they get the Power Stone back from him. And that's the movie. And now they're a team. And they're going to go off and do other adventures together, which we get to see in the future. But Mm -hmm. that's the plot of Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a good one. So I think as I was saying, as we were having our discussion about which movie should go forward in the Guardians boyhood matchup, I feel like this year is a high watermark in terms of quality for the MCU. So it's this movie and Captain America, the Winter Soldier. We debated a little bit about which one of those we'd actually want to put into this episode overall. I think Guardians just works so well as its own standalone piece. You don't really have to be involved and invested in the MCU story to understand what's going on here. Yeah, that's why we ended up going with Guardians. And as I said, I think James Gunn makes what is actually a pretty difficult task in terms of structuring a movie like this look absolutely effortless. It is so fun and so funny. All of the characters are so great. And you, you know, the course of one movie come to love them. And despite the fact that, yes, at its heart, there's a MacGuffin. Yes, there may be a beam of light at some point. It really is about the character relationships. Yeah of the Guardians, and that really works. But do we want to talk a little bit about Adult Star-Lord's introduction? 1,000%. This is one of the best introductions of any character in the whole MCU, I think. I think in in movies, generally, in terms of setting a tone for who a character is and what they're like, again, it's pretty masterful. Yeah, it's great. Because there's this very important and 
difficult tonal shift that needs to happen at the beginning of the movie. Because you need to start and give us the information about the fact that his mother died and that he was stolen by aliens. And like, how did this guy who's a human from Earth end up where he is? So you'd get this sad, serious beginning beat. And then it's like, that's not what the movie is, though. (laughs) So there's this shift that needs to happen where we're like, okay, the movie is actually fun and funny and action and great soundtrack. And just there's a vibe to Guardians. And they give you every piece of that in this perfect introductory scene of Peter Quill, where he shows up on this island and it starts serious. It seems like... He's this serious guy and he's here on a mission. He's an adventurer. He's an adventurer. Maybe it's like an Indiana Jones kind of thing or something. And then he puts on, does he put on his headphones or does he just like- He puts on his headphones and because of when he left Earth, it is an 80s styled Walkman with those foam over the ear headphones, which depending on your age, you may not remember, but I remember. (laughs) Yep. It's just, it's this perfect scene. Come and get your love comes out of nowhere. And you're like, oh man, what a great song. And then he's dancing to it. And there's some choreography. And he's in time with the music, interacting with the things around him. And he's so silly and funny. And then he gets to the thing that he's trying to steal. And then you get this perfect button of the introduction to him where these other guys show up as he's trying to get away with the thing. And they're like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Star-Lord. You might maybe have you've heard, heard of me. Maybe you've heard of me by another name, Star-Lord. Yes. And they're like, who? <laughs> Bless Jaiman Hansu. <laughs> it's just such a good introduction where you're like, I know everything about this guy immediately. You don't need to explain anything else to me about him. It's, his story is all right there. It's perfectly done. We should also say, I don't think we've made this observation yet, Bradley Cooper's best performance this year. (laughs) By a large margin. He's doing great work as Rocket Raccoon. He's got a whole other voice happening. There's a character. There's an accent. If you didn't know it was Bradley Cooper, you would not automatically be like, that's Bradley Cooper. It's not like he's just doing his own voice. And there's so much character to him. His intonation is perfect. His delivery of these lines is just excellent. It's excellent. It's a great character. And he has such range because he's this really cynical, sarcastic character. But he has this strong bond with Groot. So then you get some moments where he's really emotional and worried because, spoiler alert, Groot kind of dies He sacrifices himself for the group, but then luckily a little bit of him survives. And then you get Baby Groot in the next film. Baby Groot's this whole other thing. Yeah. This movie is also, I think, the first time I'm a wrestling fan, so I knew who Dave Bautista was. But like as an actor, this is sort of his debut on a big scale. And he's fabulous. He's so funny. funny. Each of these characters gets to be really funny in their own completely different way from anyone else and Drax's whole thing is that he's just completely literal he doesn't understand anything with metaphor or sarcasm so everything that everyone says to him he takes literally and it leads to just hilariousness (laughs) he's really very funny and then Zoe Saldana is a little bit the straight woman of the group, mm-hmm. but she's great too. But you get enough backstory of each of the characters that you understand their motivations, you understand their personality. I also think the scene where they're having that fight in the plaza, there's so much character work that's happening in that in that action scene. Well, because that's also. the introduction for Rocket and Groot. And you get these very different styles for them and Gamora. And there's physical hijinks happening. It's really well choreographed. 
the craft of the film shines through. It's so well made. Yeah. And there's just some excellent set pieces. The whole prison escape sequence is just fantastic. <laughs> That's yes. so well done. And again, I mean, they're using so many of the moments for character development, which is exactly what you need to be doing to efficiently go through the story. It's a really, really good movie. Yeah. John C. Riley's also in this movie, who you're always happy to see. Love John C. Riley. <laughs> Michael Rooker as Yondu is hilarious. I like the Ravagers. His weird little arrow weapon thing is fantastic. I, the scene where he finally uses it on the ground against all those people, you're like, well, that's what he's been holding on to this whole time. If you haven't seen it, he has this arrow thing he telepathically controls. And throughout the movie, he's been threatening people with it. So you see it multiple times, but he never really uses it because he's just using it as a, a threat. And so then you finally get the payoff at the end where it zips around and kills like 15 guys <laughs> that he's surrounded by. And you're like, wow, that is actually a great weapon. <laughs> this is a very powerful character. I did not understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we kind of touched on it, but aside from Come and Get Your Love, the entire soundtrack is great. Incredible. A fabulous selection of songs. And a wonderful emotional tie-in because it turns out that the soundtrack we've been listening to is a mixtape from his mom. And then at the end, he finally opens the gift she gave him right before she died. That he's been and carrying it's, with him his whole life and never opened. It's another mixtape. It's volume two. Which is a great well, emotional beat, but also a hilarious setup for the second movie, which will now have a second soundtrack. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy volume two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we yeah, all saw we it. We get it. Yeah, all the emotions work for me. I cry multiple times watching this movie, too. It's a good one. And we we both love a... It's like not quite a heist movie, but it has a similar setup where you're like assembling a team. I always love mm-hmm. an assembling a team movie. And how's the chemistry yeah. going to be? And how are they all going to work together? And what does everyone bring to the table sort of thing? But it's fun because most of them are here sort of against their will. Everyone's been dragged into this team <laughs> for various yes. reasons, and they don't really want to be here. But also, right, very solidly, they do a great job of, you understand why everyone is there. So, you know, everyone wants the bounty or the money from the MacGuffin, and, and Drax is trying to kill Gamora, and then they're going to let him kill Ronan, who's yeah. the villain, and yada, yada, But yada, it's a the great setup because then everyone has to consciously make this choice later in the movie when they decide to all put to themselves in together. danger to stay together. Yeah, it's great. It's well-crafted. The writing is good. The directing is good. The acting is good. The CGI is great. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> this is not one where they fell down on the CGI. It doesn't have any uh, American Sniper style explosions. Guys, not that I want you to watch American Sniper, but there are the fakest looking explosions in that movie. I don't understand how a big budget Hollywood movie still has that today. I don't know. Uh, it's in, real bad. In 2014? <laughs> it's real bad. Get it together, people. So anyway, yeah. Love Guardians. I think it, it it does stand on its own, which is nice, too, for an MCU movie. I don't think you have to see anything else mm-hmm. to watch it. So if you are a person who avoids the MCU movies because you're like, it's too much. There's too many. I can't, I can't track deal all with these it. people. Yeah. You can watch a Guardians. Mm-hmm. You'll be fine. And you should. Okay. Love it. All right. Let's talk about Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. So Snowpiercer. Too succinctly sum up this film. We are existing in a future where an apocalyptic climate change related event has occurred. And now the entire world 
is covered in ice and snow. The temperature has snowball earth, snowball earth, part two. Exactly. The temperature has dropped precipitously and the only remaining people left alive are people that made it onto this train that some genius inventor guy made before the end of the world that Incidentally. Incidentally, yeah. He didn't make it for this. He happened to have made it. And then it was like, wow, this is the perfect thing for the world in which we find ourselves. And it's a train that runs continuously at circumnavigating the globe. And it's this incredibly long train that has become, you know, microcosm of society. So the way that the train is running is at the front of the train are all of the like privileged, wealthy classes of people. The very front of the train is where the guy who invented it lives, and he keeps the train mm-hmm. running up there. They have crammed everybody who is not a rich, important member of society into these last cars of the train, and they have nothing back there. They Every day, somebody brings in a cart of these bricks, like protein bricks made of what they don't know, but that's all they have to eat and you know they're like they're everybody's dirty and it's like they're crammed in together and they don't have enough to eat and every once in a while the people from the front of the train come and steal some of their children yep (laughs) they don't know why it just happens someone comes and is like we'll be taking this child and this child thank you and then they just abscond with the children so over the course of time that they have lived on this train, which is a long time at this point. It's like 17 or 20 years. It's like somewhere. Revolution has been building in the back. There's a rumor going around that the guns that the people bring back into their car don't actually have any bullets in them because there Mm -hmm. had been another revolution, I think 17 years ago. I think that's what this. No, it was sometime in between. There's been like a couple of revolutions over the course of the life of the train. So this one was like six or seven years ago or something. So they think they don't actually have anything to threaten them with. And so they do this. They stage the fight. It turns out the guys who are in their car don't have any bullets in their guns. So they get past them pretty easily. They get up to another car where they find this guy who is, is he an engineer? What's his deal? Yeah, he designed all the electrical systems for the train, but he's become addicted to this drug, which is like a waste product of the train that's a hallucinogen, him and his daughter. And so they need to give them little bits of the hallucinogen to get them to continue to open the doors of the train as they move through. Yeah. So as they move from one car to the next, he has to basically, you know, hotwire the doors so that all the locks will open. So they wake him and his daughter up from stasis, basically. There's an interesting thing going Mm -hmm. on there. And bring them along on their mission. I think they put them all in stasis until the earth thawed out. You would think. Why do people, why is it important to them? And and there is an answer to this, but I'll ask now. Why is it important to them that they have all of these people living in this nightmare situation at the back of the train when they could just seemingly put them in stasis until the world is better? So we'll find out. Yeah. So they do, you know, the structure of the movie is you're moving from car to car, experiencing the various things. Right. So eventually, you know, they they continue to move through the train. It's revealed that that hallucinogen is also an explosive and the engineer is trying to actually sabotage the train. So he's trying to get close enough to the engine to blow it up because mm-hmm. he's like, this is unacceptable. And by the time they get to the front of the train, the only people remaining are Chris Evans, the engineer and the engineer's daughter. Yes. They've lost everyone else. I think the engineer and the daughter get distracted because there's so much of the hallucinogen in the part in the party train. 
And yeah. I think they're working on the um, the explosive as well. And so Chris Evans is brought into the front train car with Ed Harris, who is the I mean, inventor of the train. doing a classic Ed Harris performance. This role is is I so mean, Ed Harris. It's good. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. So let's talk about what he learns so, from Ed Harris. Yeah, Ed Harris brings him in and is like, "I'm so glad you're here. I've been waiting." For you to arrive, basically, is the vibe of him. And he tells him a lot of things that really blow his mind. It turns out that he has been orchestrating this plot for revolution the whole time. Also, the old guy, who is Chris Evans' father figure type and advisor and best friend, was the partner of Ed Harris back in the day. And he has been involved in this as well. And he intentionally went back to live in the, you know, the whatever we're calling the end of the car so that they could, you know, control this whole thing together. And the two of them have been in communication the whole time. Yes. And not only did they plan this revolution, they planned all of those previous revolutions that were mentioned. And it is a method for controlling the population. So also, he basically tells Chris Evans, I'm getting older, right? And I'm reaching like, what's going to be retirement age for me? And I can't run this train forever. And me and the old advisor guy, we really see something in you. (laughs) We think that you're the type of man to take over. And we've been like grooming you for this opportunity this whole time. So obviously this is really fucking with Chris Evans' head. He's telling him all of these amazing things about how great it is to run the train and to live in this car is so good. And you're going to love everything about it. You'll have all of these opportunities. You can make so much happen. I think he's even telling him, like, you know, if you want, you can, like, make life better for all of the people. You'll have the power to do anything that you want to do if you're in this. So long as you're within the same system. Right. Because the system is great. The system works and you can change it from the inside. And so you're like, almost maybe Chris Evans is buying it. And then (laughs) you find out something about the train. You find out what's been happening to the children who have been abducted. Yep. So it turns out that there's this very intricate machinery inside the front of the engine. And it's in this very tight space. And nobody can get inside to work on the engine except for the children who can fit into the space with their tiny little bodies and their tiny little hands. And so they live in the fucking walls of the engine room. But that's also right why they're keeping the poor people poor, because this is a population that they can go in whenever they need and collect more children. And so there is a little white boy they've taken and a little black boy. But the first one you see is they open up the floor of the train and you see this little black boy in this very tight it's an space, incredible image. manipulating all of the things. And it is upsetting. <laughs> Put it mildly. So it becomes apparent that the system is rotten to the core and cannot be saved. And as all of this is happening, the engineer and his daughter have been outside trying to assemble this plastic explosive to blow a hole in the side of the train. They, the reason that the engineer is doing this is he has this theory because every year they pass plane, I think a crashed plane. And for years, as they would pass it every year, there'd be more and more snow covering up the plane. And then in recent years, there started to be less and less snow covering up the plane. And he got it into his head that maybe the world was getting warmer. And so they do blow a hole in the side of the train. Mm -hmm. Chris Evans and the daughter of the engineer end up shielding 
the little boy between the two of them during the explosion. And so the daughter and the little boy are the only survivors really of this explosion at the front. And then the two of them put on these fur coats that the weird rich club goer people had been wearing. (laughs) And the two of them walk out of the train into this like untouched snowy landscape. And they see a polar bear. And they do see a polar bear. Which means things are alive. And yeah, it's very interesting that, you know, you've been seeing this conversation between Chris Evans and Ed Harris, these two white man, men, and who survives? A little black boy and a little Asian girl. Yep. Mm, interesting. Interesting, 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 Bong interesting, Joon interesting, Ho. interesting. <laughs> I just, I love him. It's such a perfect metaphor for capitalism and like the way that people feel bound by it and how everyone tells you like, it's not safe out there. We have to protect the system because if we don't protect the system, what will happen? Everything out there is communism (laughs) and that will immediately kill you. It's good. And it's fun. It is Like them going through the train cars is fascinating and every new car is like, well, what the hell is this? And it's a great action movie and Again, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, is now is the time doing it all. Uh, we talked. We love Tilda Swinton, and we will. We this do. is not the last we'll be talking about Tilda Swinton in this episode. By the way, <laughs> no, friend. But we talked, however many episodes ago it was, during Michael Clayton about how we did not understand why Tilda Swinton had won the Academy Award for that movie. Not because we don't love Tilda Swinton, but because it is, I would call it an understated Tilda Swinton performance. <laughs> Yeah. There's really not that much going on with it. The opposite is true here. Why she is not nominated for this boggles the mind. <laughs> I mean, the performance she's doing is crazy. There's like a wild accent. The appearance is crazy. Her mannerisms are insane. She's wearing these Coke bottle glasses. She's got these fake teeth in that are like a lot. It's wild. She is transformed but also like you just can't take your eyes off of her she's amazing in this movie i love Love her this one (laughs) she's so good yeah but it's just it yeah it's this perfect little microcosm metaphor for the world we live in i think it is also brilliant so we didn't say the climate catastrophe is not the climate change we're experiencing it's the attempt to solve the climate change we're experiencing with technology as opposed to actually changing how we deal with and treat the earth. So mm-hmm. it's a geoengineering that went awry, yeah. which is a thing that we're really talking about. We're really talking about seeding the atmosphere to cool the planet. And that's what ran away from them. Yeah. So yeah, there's only one thing I don't love about this movie. And that is, we didn't talk about it, Right before they get to the front of the train, Chris Evans delivers this monologue, which is very good, where he reveals that when they first got on the train, it was before they had those protein bars. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. I was wondering what your complaint was, and now I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Before they had the protein bars, it was just chaos in the back, and they were engaging in cannibalism. I mean, literally, what were they supposed to do? They put a bunch of people into some cars with no food. (laughs) And so Chris Evans talks about how, you know, he got to a really low point, and they almost ate a baby, and that baby was the Jamie Bell character who dies earlier in the movie it is a poignant speech yes but earlier in the movie they're all wh- horrified to learn that their protein bars are made out of bugs and it's like dude you want to a baby yeah calm down the bugs are great <laughs> they're so protein rich you should be happy to be eating those bugs we should be eating bugs in real life now i've eaten some bugs me too they're pretty good mm-hmm. i had cricket tacos oh yeah i've had i've had fried crickets <laughs> with different toppings they're not bad people don't fear the bugs 
There are worse things yeah. you could eat. Among them, like a babies. baby. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my only that's my only real complaint about the movie is like you can't be grossed out, man. Yeah, let's normalize eating bugs, and let's yes. abnormalize eating babies. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I love it. Yep, it's a great one. People should watch it. It's a neat, tidy little metaphor. Everything ties into everything else in this great way where the more you think about it, the more you're like, oh, and that and that. And it all makes so much sense, which is a similar experience to watching Parasite. All right. Should we get to our final matchup? The finals of this long journey? We should, but I'm kind of afraid. I don't know if I know what to do. (laughs) As we've said, these are very dissimilar films, which we love both of them. They each have a lot to Mm -hmm. recommend them. These films are The Grand Budapest Hotel and Nightcrawler. What to do, what to do. (laughs) What we could do is we could talk through both of them and then declare our winner. Maybe that's what we should do. Maybe we'll end up convincing ourselves or each other of what is the better one. I think that's good. Let's save save it for the end. Let's start with Grand Budapest. Sure. So Grand Budapest is a Wes Anderson film with all of that entails. People will know how stylized that means that it it is. It is about a character that Ray Fiennes plays who is a concierge at a fancy hotel slash resort thing in a fictional Eastern European town. And he it's it's like a super high class hotel. So he's a very exacting concierge with, Mm -hmm. with particular set of expectations and rules. And then there is this position at the hotel called a lobby boy (laughs) that is i guess also a prestigious role to have in the hotel world and so it starts with tony revolori who we did not realize was like a child (laughs) when they made 16 when they made this movie incredible it's incredible i knew that he came from this but i didn't know that he'd done nothing else in his life literally before this movie happened (laughs) well the funny thing is we googled him and i went wait he's 26 now (laughs) Yeah. How is he so young? It's wild. But he is a new lobby boy at the hotel. He's just starting his job. The action kicks off with Ray Fiennes is sort of a romancer of various elderly women who stay at the hotel. Yes, that's one of the services he provides. Exactly. And so Tilda Swinton, again, blessed Tilda Swinton, plays a woman that he has been doing this with at the hotel. And she's great. (laughs) It's another Tilda Swinton, you wouldn't even recognize version of herself. But she is staying at the hotel. She doesn't want to leave this time. She has this sense that something bad is going to happen if she leaves the hotel. And he is like, you're being irrational. Everything's going to be fine. You'll go home. You'll come back. We'll see each other again soon. It's not going to be a problem. So she goes home and then she dies. He gets word that she has died. And then he and Tony Revolori set off to go to the will reading at her house. And then there are all of these fantastical characters in her family, which is sort of headed by Adrian Brody and these various hilarious sisters. three sisters. Yes. And at the will reading, it comes out that she has left to Ray Fiennes' character this very valuable painting. Boy with apple. Boy with apple. And so it becomes clear that the family is going to contest this will. And so he ends up stealing the painting, basically. So he and Tony Revolori take off with the painting. They're on the run. And Adrian Brody hires Willem Dafoe, 
also great, who is like this security enforcer enforcer guy to track them down. So he's tracking them throughout the course of this film. Then again, they're on the run. They have the painting. They go back to the hotel. And is it then when they're on the train that this happens? So initially on the train ride to the will reading, they're confronted by these sort of like border patrol. And there's this interesting undercurrent running throughout the movie that fascism is on the rise in this fictional Eastern European country. It feels very pre-World War II in vibe. And then the the border patrol that are harassing them have distinctly Nazi-esque outfits. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also when we first meet Ed Norton because he's their commanding officer. And he's like, no, they, they can go because he had a positive experience with Ray Fine's character when he was a boy. Yes. So it's very personal. But once they get back to the hotel, they frame Ray Fine's for... Tilda Swinton's murder, and that's why he's arrested, Yes, right? So there's this period of the film, too, where he's in jail, and that's delightful. It is delightful. The jail is also filled with hilarious characters. But while he's in the jail, he has left his lobby boy to, like, keep things under control at the hotel. And then, meanwhile, the lobby boy has this romance with Saoirse Ronan. And then from inside the prison, Ray Fiennes has been orchestrating with Tony Revolori, who's been sneaking in tools and stuff for him, an escape from the prison. And he, in his very particular concierge way, has developed relationships with all of the other prisoners because he is sort of doing helpful customer service for everyone in the <laughs> He leads with kindness. Prison. Yes, he does. He is great with people. He has amazing relationships. And the, what he puts out in the world comes back to him, you know? And so he has made friendships with all of these various prisoners, including Harvey Keitel doing Harvey Keitel. (laughs) Yes. This is one of these also fantasy movies where everyone's just doing their own accent and you're like, fabulous. Saoirse Ronan is Irish. Adrian Brody's American. It works. It's fine. So they stage their prison breakout. They do get out. Everyone else goes on the run. Tony Revolori is there to pick up Ray Fiennes. They need to somehow confront Adrian Brody because he's been framing him for the murder and also wants the painting from them. And so they know they're in danger from them. Right. And the butler of Tilda Swinton has also been killed now. No, he's on the run. He hasn't been killed yet. So he's in hiding. And so they go to find him because he's going to help clear their name because he's the one who accused them of. Oh, right. They had pressured this butler guy into framing them for the murder of Tilda Swinton. So he's on the run. They need to find him. Ray finds his character, puts out a call to this organization of hotel of the concierges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is called the golden, the golden key or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. And so it's this another delightful sequence where all of these concierges of all the hotels are calling each other to look for this guy that they're trying to locate. And they do finally locate him. So they, they end up in a, like a snowy mountainside convent and they're talking to him through a confessional and as they're talking to him, he's murdered. They leave the confessional and they see Willem Dafoe also leaving the building. Yeah. They're dressed all as monks. And so then they have the chase scene where they're all on the sleds and the toboggans going down the hill. A hilarious chase scene. And they're able to, I think, kill Willem Dafoe, but they're seen by the the cops as they're doing yeah, it. I think and there's so like, like oh, there's a ravine or something and they're on one side mm-hmm. and then Edward Norton and all of his people are on the other side and they see each other across it. Yes. And so now, right, they're under suspicion for killing Willem Dafoe's character. Although to be fair, Ed Norton has figured out that Willem Dafoe is suspicious because the Jeff Goldblum's character, who is the family lawyer, has disappeared. 
appeared, yes. as have other people around the situation. Suspicious. It's very suspicious. So they go back to the hotel and it's been taken over by the fascists. And so they're able to, with the help of Sir Ronan, sneak back in. But she gets seen by Adrian Brody. There's this hilarious sh- shootout in the hotel. <laughs> it's amazing. But basically, they're all able to escape. And Hidden in Boy with Apple is a new will. And it's revealed that Tilda Swinton had been the owner of the hotel. And not only did she leave Boy with Apple to Ray Fine, she left the hotel to him. So he then yeah. gets to live this life now as the owner of the hotel. But very sadly, after Tony Rivalori and Saoirse Ronan get married, they're on a train somewhere else. And things have gotten even worse in the country. And Ray Fiennes' character is killed by the fascists and it's the end of an era it's such a fascinatingly well-told story it also is a we didn't talk about the framing device this is a story within a story within a story story. because it it starts with this girl who is visiting a grave of a guy that you don't know yet and it turns out to be the writer of this book that she loves and she has the book that she is her favorite of his and she sits down to read the book and then the book is about like what we're learning, but the there's a framing device in the book because the story is a story that Jude Law is the writer learned when he went to stay at this hotel and he happened to meet the very old owner of the hotel who sits down yes. with him to tell him the story. And that owner is the Tony Revolori lobby boy character. And so you're like, how did he come to own the hotel? So that's part of the story that he's telling too. And the way he came to own it is what we've just learned, that it was eventually left to Ray Fiennes, who left it to him. But the way that that storyline ends, and it's been this very whimsical and fun and like there's danger, but you're not really feeling the consequences of the danger too much throughout it. And then you get to this super poignant beat at the end where Tony Revolori's character is talking about the two of them traveling on this train. And it's a repeat of the scene they'd had earlier where they get stopped by the basically the SS who are looking for Tony Revolori's papers because he is an immigrant. And Ray Fine stands up to them again and it had worked out the first time, but they don't show you what happens at the end of the scene this time. And it's then he's sort of like, what happened to him? And it's like, well, they killed him. And you're like, yeah. damn. <laughs> it's sad. Sad, dark story. It's sad. It's pretty sad. And it also is sad because you've come into the hotel at the – like when it's long past its glory days, when you're first seeing it, it's this sort of rundown hotel. Hardly anyone is staying there. Nobody appreciates it. And then you see it in its glory days. And yeah. it used to be something, this hotel. It really did. It's good. It's really good. <laughs> I've told you this before. I am a Wes Anderson fan. I know he's very particular and not for everyone, but he is for me. Mm-hmm. I've I've been a Wes Anderson fan you know, since I was a teenager, probably. And the movies of his that I saw back then were The Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore, the classic Wes Anderson pieces, if you will. Yeah. And so that's when I sort of fell in love with Wes Anderson's style. And I always think of those as being what I think of when I think of a Wes Anderson movie. And then when I become attached to a director like that, I often find it hard to update what my favorite of their movies is. And I really feel Mm -hmm. like on revisiting... I don't know if I'd call it my favorite. I think this is his best film. I think that it is so incredibly well made. The storytelling is excellent. The characters are excellent. And it also has done exactly what he's always trying to do with the like incredibly specific production design. And the look of it is so 
exactingly precise. And it's like, this has to be exactly what he imagined when he set out to make this yes. movie. It must look like he saw it on the inside of his brain because it's so perfect looking. I mean, we don't know, obviously, what the rest of his career will look like, but it feels like the culmination. It is like the most Wes Anderson, a Wes Anderson movie could be. And so obviously, yes, if you are not a Wes Anderson fan, this is probably not for you. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to look at it and appreciate the craft, which I at least hope people can do, because clearly a lot of work went into making this movie look and feel like it does. But yeah, if you're not, if the vibe isn't for you, it's a very Wes anderson vibe. I am also a Wes Anderson fan. I've not seen all of his movies, but the thing, you know, as I'm watching it for the podcast and, and really trying to think about it that stood out to me is the way that he frames his films leaves so much space for cutaway gags. Yeah. <laughs> His I really language enjoy. with the camera is so great. There is just like, he's telling so much of the story and he's telling jokes with just where the camera is and how it's moving. That's magical. <laughs> That's magical that you have done that because there are laugh out loud jokes in this movie that are just about the placement of something within a frame or the way that the camera lens moves from one thing to another thing. And you're like, that's craftsmanship. <laughs> like the storytelling is amazing. Yeah, but you know what a cast. Yep, I think we mentioned pretty much Ray Fiennes, Jeff Goldblum, Willem Dafoe, Tony Revolori is great. This is still pretty early on in Saoirse Ronan's career. Yeah, I don't know that I would have known who she was in 2014. But it, you know, she's so wonderful and charming in it as she is in everything. Yep. Dilda Swinton, all of the the members of the Golden Key situations are your like Wes Anderson regulars who you love to see. Yeah, who you normally would see in one of these movies, but maybe they don't have a big role. So you get Bill Murray and Owen Wilson and Bob Balaban. Just like everybody that you've ever seen in a in a Wes Anderson movie where you're like, why aren't they in the cast? Oh, they are. They're just gonna pop up yeah. <laughs> in the Golden and Key thing. Jason Schwartzman is the concierge in the future when Jude Law is having the conversation with F. Murray Abraham. So you you do get a Jason Schwartzman as well. So yeah, all the regulars. But yeah, it's funny. It's suspenseful. The scene where Willem Dafoe is tracking Jeff Goldblum through that art museum is like a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Well, there are, he, he really does play with all these various fascinating styles because it is very much a Hitchcock movie that whole scene becomes like we're in a horror movie they're playing with shadow and you're like seeing people's shadows come around corners as they're tracking each other it's like awesome and it's just that little tiny bit of the movie this is exactly the tone we needed for just this moment which is similar to the whimsy of the I want to talk more about the prison escape scene because it's just so well done it's yeah. fantastic. The thing the prison reminded me of more than anything now is Paddington 2. Yes. When Paddington is in prison. Yes. Which now I think we can think of as a reference to the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. But yeah, in that scene, they've been planning this whole escape situation. So then you get your own prison escape movie within a movie going on here. And, and Harvey Keitel is obviously hilarious. And they're like the stereotypes of the criminal guys juxtaposed with the super straight lace to Ray Fines of it all. But there are just these hilarious visual gags through the entire escape. So they've been digging out, they've been digging a tunnel with the tools that they managed to sneak in in the middle of the pastries. And so they have like a file and like a spoon. Yeah. And so they've built this, they've been digging a tunnel under the table that they play cards around and they go down through the tunnel when it's finally time to escape. And it's like a massive tunnel. <laughs> 
have yeah. dug a tunnel. It's like eight feet by 12 no feet. No one could possibly have Perfectly dug. symmetrical. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, I mean, that's hilarious in itself. But when you're escaping from prison via tunnel, you're thinking Shawshank, right? You dig a tunnel mm-hmm. out of the prison. That's what the tunnel is for. Get in the tunnel. Tunnel goes out of the prison. But no, <laughs> not in this case. They go into their tunnel and it takes them into the heart of the prison, basically. They are having to sneak past other prisoners and past the guards as they're escaping. And they get this ladder, which is like a 30-foot log ladder. (laughs) There's a scene. They're all carrying the ladder and they're passing by and they're going and you're just seeing more ladder and more ladder. You're like, that's not a ladder that anyone has ever seen before. (laughs) It's a ridiculous ladder. And also, like, where did they keep the ladder? (laughs) Exactly. So then they need the ladder because it goes down, you know, three stories of prison, basically. Mm. And it just, like, keeps going. There's all of these various silly ways they have to escape. It's just really good. And then I don't think we've talked enough about how funny Ray Fiennes is in this movie. His his line deliveries are incredible. impeccable. I think we were, like, three minutes into this movie when I was like, you know, I need more Ray Fiennes in my life. Like, where have I been? I need more of him. I already, I will get to this when we do the Schindler's List here, but I'm obsessed with him that he's given one of, I always call it top five, but I don't know what other ones I put up there. Top five all time performances in that movie. I I love Mm -hmm. Ray Fiennes. He can be amazing as a serious actor, but he's so, so funny in this movie. And it is all in the particulars of his tiny little line deliveries and how he chooses to emphasize something. And you're just like, He's masterful. It's great. Yes, we are going to talk about this with our next movie as well. But I know it's probably been pretty clear that we feel that the nominees were maybe not quite right. I'm going to say lead actor category. Not quite right. Yeah. Stick a Ray Fiennes in there. I would have nominated Ray Fiennes. I mean, we've made our opinions clear about Sniper. So obviously, you know, we think Bradley Cooper is going. I think I would lose Benedict Cumberbatch too to make room. I would also. For Rafe. And he who remains nameless at this point. (laughs) Yes, we will get to who else we think should have been in that category. But yeah, he's so funny. We should talk about Um, Ed Norton because we said we would talk about Ed Norton when we passed him. So you and I had both seen this movie before and we watched, I think, Birdman first. And then we got to this movie and we're like, oh, Ed Norton's in this too? Turns out he's in a lot of this and he's a delight. Yeah, I don't know how the two of us forgot about him. He's a main character of this movie. He has a delightful little mustache. Yeah. He has a hilarious little mustache. I don't know how we forgot about him because there's an iconic image from it that I feel like they use on posters that is him in the, it's in the prison, right? And like he pops up out of the hole and it's like exactly, you've you've all seen it. (laughs) Ed Norton, front and center. But yeah, both of us turned to each other and went, oh, Ed Norton's in this. And then we were like, oh, he's really in it. And he's great. He's hilarious. (laughs) It's an incredible cast as Wes Anderson is want to do and I just so I don't know how he can top it he's gotten so good I often find auteur directors I think are kind of trying to make the same movie over and over it's like there's a thing in their head that they're trying to perfect and so they keep trying to do a thing that's like either playing on exactly the same themes or playing on similar imagery or something and and I definitely Mm -hmm. feel that with Anderson and, and at this point I'm like how could what Grand Budapest Hotel not be it? Like he has to have made the movie (laughs) that he was trying to make at this point. So what's he going to do now? I still haven't seen the new one that I know is completely different. Yeah. I haven't seen the French Dispatch yet either. So 
I love him. I'm happy to still obviously watch his works after this, oh, but yeah. it does seem like a, an absolute high point. And it's great. And the ending is an absolute gut punch. Yes. And you deserve it too, is the thing. I feel like you deserve the gut punch because there's been clearly this like fascist thing going on in the subtext of the movie that we haven't been following as part of the plot. But it's hard to put mm-hmm. that in there and not and have it be like a joke. That's not like a joke thing. It's yeah. like a serious thing. And so then for you to get this moment of like, oh, right. Forgot about that. I love it. It's a beautiful movie. It's gorgeous. All right. You want to talk about Nightcrawler? Yes, I do. And you know what's great is the fact that we're talking about this last because I feel like this movie is the inspiration for the entirety of the 2014 discourse between you and I. Mm Mm-hmm. We've been complaining about the lack of recognition that Nightcrawler received for eight years. And we're about to complain about it on this podcast right now. It's all happening, people. We should say what Nightcrawler is about real quick. Jake Gyllenhaal plays a character who is, at the beginning, kind of just adrift. He's doing petty crimes when you first meet Mm -hmm. him. But you don't really know what his deal is, where he comes from, what this guy's whole backstory is, except that he is terrifying to look at, (laughs) which we can get back to later. That's true. And he ends up getting a tip because he happens upon a a car crash when he's driving and he gets out of his car because he sees this film crew arrive to film the car crash on the highway and he's fascinated by the sort of spectacle of it and there's people there trying to rescue the woman who's in this car and then there's this guy with a camera who's trying to get in (laughs) and get the good shot of it and he's like what's this all about who are you and he ends up hearing that you can film stuff like this car crashes and various violence and crimes crimes and dead bodies and stuff and sell it to the news stations. And so this is a moment of inspiration for him. And he decides this is the thing for him to do. So he- It's a job for me, Lou Bloom. Me, Lou Bloom. This is what I should be doing. So he goes out, he buys a camera. Well, he steals someone's bike to buy a camera. (laughs) He basically barters. He steals a bike. He goes in like a hilarious sequence, by the way. (laughs) Because he puts on the character of the bike guy to go to a um, pawn shop to sell it and buy a camera. And the guy won't give him as much money as he wants. So, yeah, he basically is like, what can I get if I trade it in for store credit? And he gets the camera. He takes to it immediately. And so he starts getting footage of these various horrible incidents. And he starts a professional relationship with Renee Russo at this local news station. She's like a segment editor for the local news station. She chooses what's going to make the air and and what footage to put alongside it. And so she buys the stuff from him when he brings it in. And his business starts to like grow. He's having success doing this. He's selling a lot of tapes. He decides to take on an intern because that's exactly what he needs for his growing business. And so he puts... What must be an insane ad? We never see the text of it. Well, yeah, because when Riz Ahmed shows up, he's like, they didn't say what the job was. Yeah, and you're like, well, then what did it say? But he puts an ad for the job into the paper. Riz Ahmed comes and interviews for it. He clearly is also like, he can't hold down a job. He's running him through his work history. And he has had all of these various things that didn't, never worked out. And so he's desperate for this job. And 
<laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal wants to bring him on as an intern for no pay, and he's like, I can't, I can't work for no pay. Like, it's not even worth it to me to get out here. <laughs> I have to pay for gas. And so he ends up hiring him for some like ridiculously low amount of money. What is it, like 30 bucks a night or something like that? Yeah. So now he has this intern, and the two of them are doing the job together. And how would you describe this? I mean, this is another like foxcatchery tone thing more than a plot thing <laughs> for how things are going. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's kind of a, a, a predatory job, like both from the perspective of the guys going out and getting the footage and also from the news organizations, right, who who want violence to put on the broadcast so yeah. people will watch it. The catchphrase of theirs is, if it bleeds, it leads. Yes. And it just sort of spirals and gets darker and darker and it ends up being this great satire of television news as well as this like dark psychological thriller. So the guy he initially saw doing this work was Bill Paxton and he has a rivalry with him and Bill Paxton eventually expands his, his business to two vans yeah. and he wants to bring on Lou Bloom because he's been so successful. And Lou is like, no, thank you. I'm doing my own thing. And he eventually like cuts the van's breaks and seriously injures Bill Paxton. So you're like, wow, this is really taking a turn to be something else. Yeah. And shows up at the crash site of Bill Paxton's van to be the one who films it and puts it on the news. And you're like, whoa, things are escalating (laughs) with Lou Bloom. Jake Gyllenhaal lost a ton of weight for this role. And there's a scene where he shows up at at the the accident. And so he's filming Bill Paxton as they're rolling him into the the ambulance. And like, you can kind of tell maybe Bill Paxton knows what he does. But there's a scene where you see him, he's holding his camera above his head and the film camera is trained on the camera. And then it starts to pan down. And in your mind, of course, you know, we're panning down to Jake Gyllenhaal's face because he must be below the camera. But I still screamed when they showed it's face. like a jump scare. He's so scary looking. It's the eye contact, the look on his face, the fact that you know that he's making eye contact with Bill Paxton, who he just put in the hospital intentionally. There's something about it where you're just like, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Right. And you're like, I, it's exactly what I was expecting. It's his face, but it's freaking me out. Yeah. He also, like, just to cover the darkness of this character, he blackmails Renee Russo into having a sexual relationship with him. It's and hugely so- fucked. Yeah. So basically, he's gotten so good at getting this footage that she needs to keep him on because like they're like third in the ratings or some nonsense. They're like low in the ratings. And it's about to be sweeps week and her contract is going to be renewed. Right. So she needs to keep getting his footage and he knows that he has leverage over it. And the way he chooses to use this leverage is to rape her, essentially. Right. Have non-consensual sex with her. And so like you're like, Ooh, okay. Uh, we started off in one place where I was like, this guy's not great. And I'm like, oh, this guy's like a murderer and a rapist. Yeah. And then he shows up at one crime scene where before the police have arrived and he sees the guys who committed the crime leave. And instead of being like, oh, I saw the car and I know the license plate numbers and reporting to the police, he goes into the house and he films all the dead people before the police get there. And then he hangs on to the information that he has their license plate number and that has finally reached a breaking point where he's trying to get more money out of him. More than $30 a night. So he, Blue Bloom lets Rizamed negotiate for how much he wants. And that's a sad scene because he's like, a hundred, a hundred dollars. And he's like, really? And he's like, 70, $75 a night. Blue Bloom has just bought like a beautiful new car. They're making yeah. tons of Yeah. It's poor Riz Ahmed. Poor Riz Ahmed. And so, yeah, he has he holds on to the information that he knows who the guys are because he wants to orchestrate another payday for himself by f- tracking the criminals 
waiting until they go to a public area, calling in the fact that he knows where they are, and then waiting for the police to arrive and assuming there will be some sort of like public shootout type spectacle that he can film and then also sell to the news. And he's right. There is a that happens. There is a thrilling high speed car chase uh, afterwards as they're chasing the criminals so they can get the footage. And he essentially tricks Riz Ahmed into going to film a guy who's not dead. And Riz Ahmed gets shot. And then again, instead of like calling an ambulance, Lou Bloom is just like, I'm just very upset that you took our relationship from a personal friendship into something that was business. And, you know, I can't believe you did this to me. And he lets Riz Ahmed Yeah, go. he's like, you took my my bargaining power from me or something like that. And you're like, what the f- you just orchestrated this guy's murder. What is wrong with you? It's so scary. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of the movie, but it's it's a pretty, it's a, it's a dark one. Mm-hmm. Jake Gyllenhaal's incredible in it. He's so fucking good how he was not nominated for best actor i will never know i will never know he he has constructed this fascinating character who is in some ways like really hyper intelligent but he also again in sort of a, a satire or parody of just like how the modern world works parrots like career advice he sees on the internet in a way that is hilarious but like so weird yeah it's so weird he's a weird weird dude it's very much like this is how you be a successful person under capitalism and not like you know a good person well and that taken to its extremes is you know the nature of satire right he's a very successful person under capitalism he is. And he does he it by being very, very the most monstrous person you've ever seen. Right. But I was thinking about this movie in terms of, you know, like a taxi driver or these other sort of toxic white men movies we watch. And this one really works for me. Well, it has a clear perspective. No one is left at the end of yeah. this movie like, does the movie think he's good or bad? Right. But I also think the other thing with Lou Bloom is he's very conniving. So there's a line in the movie, which is great, which I think. He says it to Riz Ahmed. What if my problem wasn't that I don't understand people, but that I don't like them? Which is a very different character from Travis Bickle, who I think really struggles to understand yeah, people. Yeah, I agree. Like, that's a very different place to be coming from. There's another line I love in this movie where when Bill Paxton's trying to get him to, to join his crew and he won't leave him alone and lose like, I'm not interested. No, thank you. And he's that's- like, come on, you could keep doing it. And he's like, you know, what I really want to do is grab you by the face and scream, fuck you. But instead, I'm going to go home and do my taxes. And it's just like this bright little cheery like, yeah, oh, okay. The delivery <laughs> on that line is incredible. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, he's very much pretending and playing at being a normal person. Interesting difference between them that I see kind of as like, the difference between this is gonna get dark and I don't know if people are gonna like this but the difference between the makings of like a mass shooter kind of character and the makings of a serial killer like that's Mm -hmm. sort of the difference between them there's this very specific toxic masculinity to Travis Bickle where you're like this is going to explode in some sort of horrific act of violence that is going to be a problem for him and everyone around him and then there's something about Lou Bloom where you're like he's going to learn that he likes to do this and he's going to be able to keep it a secret and he's just going to keep doing it. And you're like, they're yeah. different types of people. They're both super dark, <laughs> but right. Yeah. Oh, Lou Bloom. Yeah. Lou Bloom is doing things in a way that really serves him. Travis Bickles is like an undirected explosion. Like he can't control yeah. himself. Lou is controlled. Lou is very controlled and controlling. Yeah. But yeah, his performance is 
impeccable. It's another one where it's super scary, but there also are laugh out loud moments like that. Uh, instead, I'm going to go home and do my taxes. And my you're taxes. just like, what? <laughs> I also Amazing. love the line where he, he's talking to Riz Ahmed and he's like, don't come to me with a problem unless you come to me with a solution. Also, I have enough of the problems of my own. Yeah. Well, there's the fascinating thing about him is the like, you can tell that he has been pulling all of this information from everything that he experiences and he is quoting it all the time. And you're like, yeah, I, it's like he is trying to craft from everything that he sees some sort of working order and rules to follow and ways to be. I think it's the fact that he's just a sociopath. And like, I think he fully yeah. does not. He has no innate sense of what he should and shouldn't be doing. And he is trying to craft it from something. And the way that he has been crafting it is from these various pieces of like stupid fucking advice <laughs> that he sees all that around he's read the on world. the internet. But yeah, he's a wild character. Yeah. There's this interesting intentional vagueness to the scene when you meet him and he's stealing the things and then he's confronted by a guy when he's stealing the things and you leave that scene in a in a moment where at the time you don't necessarily know what to think of it but looking back on it you're like he might have murdered that guy <laughs> like we don't see yeah. what happens after this confrontation of a guy confronting him and you're like looking back Someone should check on that guy <laughs> because I do he not know if he is alive. So, yeah. It's, it's a good just, one. It's really good. I think this was the first time I saw Riz Ahmed. Yeah, me too. Um, and he's oh, poor. It's just so sad. He's a sweet, sweet boy who should never have gotten mixed up with this horrible guy. Some of the lines in are so good. Dan Gilroy did a, a bang up job it's writing great. this. And it's, um, it's really well shot. The cinematography is awesome. There's fascinating color saturation to it. LA mm -hmm. looks great and fascinating and it's almost all shot at night because that's when most of this is happening and it's a really interesting looking world. It's just such a dark but real thing that the commentary on on the local news is just like, yeah, that shit's yeah. real. It's fucked up. I mean, this is a, obviously in conversation with network, basically. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting is... Obviously, Renee Russo is a victim yes. of Blue Bloom, but she's a terrible person. Also. Oh, yes. Very much <laughs> she's so. She's not a good lady. And her, her motivations, right, are to retain her job at any cost. And sort of like the most pointed conversation in the movie is she's, I don't know if she's, I can't remember again, she's talking to him about how, or one of their assistants about, you know, crime in the inner city no one cares about. No one cares what happens to these people who are poor. But crime spilling out into wealthy areas, right? That's what we put on the news. Yep. That's what it's of interest. And so Especially yeah, if it's happening to happening white people and rich people. people. And like she's, she lays it all out there in this speech about this is what we're looking for for the local news. Because it's I think it's when he's trying to work out a deal with her where he'll be like on retainer or whatever. He's first talking yeah. to her about what they're looking for. It's earlier in their relationship. And yeah. she's like, here's what we're looking for. And she really says it. And you're like, I bet this conversation fucking happens in newsrooms across America. This is real. Yeah. It's gross. <laughs> it's hugely fucked. I love it. I loved it since I first yeah, saw it. It's great. I love Jake Gyllenhaal in it. I mean, yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal was robbed of that nomination. This movie in particular is part of the inspiration for Jake Gyllenhaal Corner and our entire quest to get Jake Gyllenhaal an Oscar because yeah, what are we doing, people? You got to recognize. If he doesn't win for this. Like what? What, what can the man, man need do, to do to make you notice? Does he have him? to eat a bear liver like Leo? Yeah, like, is he going to have to go that? full Leo and make the Revenant 
part two because I don't want to see it. It was painful enough the first time. That would be so funny if he made The Revenant part two to win an Oscar. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, But it's a good one. It's a good movie, people. You should watch it if you're not, like, too squeamish because it is dark. It definitely is dark. Okay, so we've done it. We've talked about both these movies in our final matchup. Do you have any more clarity about what should have won? I think my instinct is Grand Budapest. What's your instinct? I mean, it's difficult, right? Because I would say Nightcrawler is one of my favorite movies. But Wes Anderson is such a unique filmmaker. And if ever there was a time to reward him, and I would love to reward him, it's with Grand Budapest. Which I think we both think is like his masterwork, at least at this point in his career. So, you know, you want to award a person at their apex, and this feels like their apex. I think like, yeah, personally, I love Nightcrawler a little bit more, but. You know, I mean, I think honestly, I might too, just tonally and the performances work. Not that the performances aren't perfect in Grand Budapest, but like, I think it probably is very slightly more to my taste. But as we talked through Grand Budapest, I was like, the craft of it is just extraordinary. And it works on an emotional and narrative level too. The performances are amazing. But it's like filmmaking at its peak. Like the man is completely in control of every aspect of this film. It's incredible what he has done. I it's like a masterpiece. <laughs> so Yeah. That's right, where I'm I with stand. You. What should have won? Grand Budapest Hotel. One of our actual nominees. The only actual nominee that made it to the final four. They had every opportunity to award Wes Anderson. And they chose not to. And they did give this film four awards, but not to demean any of the craft of these people because they're all extraordinary and the stuff that they well, did. Also like production design specifically for this movie. Yeah. I'm not saying it should not have won these awards. It absolutely should have. And this movie would not be what it is without any of these categories. They're all incredible. But you can tell, I think, when the Academy really respects something when it gives it like some screenwriting awards, some directing awards, some acting rewards. That's when you start to, that's part of what makes me so weirded out by the Foxcatcher situation is that it got like such legitimate nominations and then no best picture nomination, but it's weird. Yeah. But Wes Anderson, I think is someone who for a long time, the industry has looked at as like, Oh, he's cute. He does cute. It's very stylish. But like, I think that makes people feel like it doesn't have a lot of artistic merit to it. And I just think that's wrong. You people are wrong. I think it's a beautiful story. Yeah. I think this is probably the heaviest hitting emotionally of his movies, too. Yeah, I agree with that. So what are we doing? Watch it one Grand Budapest. Did the Oscar get it wrong? You bet they did. I mean, you probably knew that two episodes ago when the movie that they picked went down in the first round. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we have to say it. But yeah, the Oscars got it wrong. It happens. Is it time to take it to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner, a place we've sort of been in for a while, but, you know, officially? Yeah, we got to go to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. We got to answer the question, should Jake Gyllenhaal have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Yes. Hell yes. <laughs> There's no excuse for him not to have been nominated this year, especially when the actual field of nominees is lacking. 
And Ray Fiennes should have been nominated for an Oscar, too. Yeah. Ray Fiennes Corner coming to you next week. (laughs) He's so good, Um, people. Ray Fiennes, underappreciated. He's perfect. He's perfect in that movie. Yes. I think it's interesting, too, right? Because there's a debate that exists in the world between, like, actors who play real people. So it's just an imitation of something that's you know, real and they can take a look at and there's clear references versus actors who construct entirely new characters. And in both the case of Ray Fiennes and Jake Gyllenhaal here, we have new constructed characters. And I'll tell you, in particular, Lou Bloom lives in my head rent free. I'm constantly thinking about, (laughs) am I going to scream fuck you or I'm going to go home and do my (laughs) dad? And fair enough, Lou Bloom is an iconic character. Who, if the AFI were ever to recreate their lists of iconic characters that they did 12 years ago or whatever at this point, Blue Bloom should be on there. He should be one of the 50 best villains. Hell yeah. He's so good. All right. I love you, Jake. But I think we have ended up with very worthy adversaries in our final round. I think both of these movies are definitely good enough in my mind to be best picture winners were they up mm-hmm. against different fields in different years and so i feel good about it i think the process has has won worked. out this year we crushed excellent. it excellent 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 work medlon <laughs> i will take all the credit for it <laughs> okay should we get into our conclusions yeah i think we should talk about our usual questions mm-hmm well, first, which of these movies, of any, do you see yourself coming back to? Oh, it's a I long mean, list. so many movies, tons of them. A lot of the ones that we picked in particular, I'll be coming back to. Like, I probably yeah. at some point in my life will rewatch Guardians of the Galaxy. And yeah, I mean, Nightcrawler, I always want to rewatch. Of the nominees, Grand Budapest, why not? Whiplash, I think that's a rewatchable movie. It is. I mean, I'm glad I rewatched Selma, but I wouldn't want to rewatch it again for another decade, probably. And then I'll do my check-in and see how much worse the state of the world is 10 years from now. (laughs) That's true. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, I think of the nominees for me, like Grand Budapest and Whiplash are are clear frontrunners in revisiting. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, probably most of the ones we suggested I would revisit again, because I... That, that was the funny thing going into this. Like, of the ones we added in, the only one I hadn't seen was Foxcatcher. And I'd seen only, like, one of the nominees, which was Grand Budapest. So, And for know. me, the process was interesting because I had seen all 16 of the movies. So it was quite the revisiting nice. of old times. All right. So what have we learned? We have to have learned something. We watched 16, well, 17 movies for this. <laughs> there was one accidental movie. That's on us. Are bad. Yeah. What have we learned? We've learned. We've learned that the Academy hates Jake Gyllenhaal for some reason. Yeah, I mean, we already knew that shit, and we've learned, which we already knew, they are unreasonably attached to biopics for reasons that I don't really understand. That's true. We have learned that wouldn't it be fun if they could mix in some like you know animated or superhero or whatever like some genre some fun shit genre yeah get us some action stuff what if any of these eight movies we picked had actually been nominated might the public have been more interested 
Possibly. Well, just because a movie has action doesn't mean it's stupid. Correct. Is maybe the position that I will take. I think that's a correct take because particularly in our conversation of Snowpiercer, while the action is great, it was 3% of our conversation about that movie. (laughs) The reason that that movie works is because it is social commentary on a grand scale. It is incredibly effective. It is a wonderful movie with a lot to say about the world, more to say about the world than almost any of the nominees. Yeah. So continued discussion of like, hey, Oscars, open up to other genres, maybe. Consider it. Consider going beyond biopic war movies. Why is there a terrible war movie in this category? It's so bad. I guess really what we learned is that Clint Eastwood, the name Clint Eastwood trumps everything about the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Because I Um, defy whoever it was at the Academy that voted for it to come here and tell me what are the things they liked about this movie. Please, please. I'm asking you. So, yeah, we have a lot of biopics, a war movie, and then two movies you know, and I think we said these both were quality films, but they come in with pretty strong gimmicks, right? Birdman has the one take. Boyhood yep. took 12 years to make. Yep. Have a gimmick. Be a biopic. Be Clint Eastwood. <laughs> well, you could be Clint Eastwood. You'd be immediately be nominated for an Academy Award. On that, I, I still am. The thing that mystifies me most about this year, leaving aside the Nightcrawler, it's Foxcatcher. I keep coming back to it. Every time it catches my eye, I'm like, I don't understand. It's a biopic. They love that shit. With strong performances where people transform themselves physically for the role. Mm-hmm. It's very serious. It was nominated in four very important other categories that usually signal extreme respect for the film. I don't understand what happened. And again, there were only eight nominees. So there were two open slots. It's very confusing. Yeah, I don't know fascinating but yeah i think what i have learned is that the oscars could be a lot more fun open up the process we had a great freaking time bringing in all of these things i mean interestingly i guess what are the numbers on how many of our things made it through to the second round i mean we ended up with only one of the nominees in our final four i guess it's not super fair because we ended up with three matchups that were uh nominee versus nominee so a lot of stuff was gonna get knocked out in the first round i think four of the eight were nominees yeah that's not bad actually no and i i I mean four of the eight were but i think the only one that maybe stood any chance if given a different matchup of making it through to the second round that didn't was birdman i don't think sniper theory of everything or imitation game were victims of their matchups no definitely not so if you have three nominees in your field of eight that are really, you could take them or leave them, it seems like a problem. <laughs> Interestingly enough, again, as part of the Nightcrawler conversation, this Academy Award did not reward an angry white guy. That angry white guy being Lou Blue. That's true. <laughs> Why are we forgetting about angry white guys all of a sudden? <laughs> Why this one time when we want an angry white guy to go through is the Academy like, no, we don't want to. It's starting to feel like what the Academy wants most is for us to be unhappy. (laughs) How strange. Okay. So yeah, tracking angry white guys, as always, tracking biopics, as always. What we haven't talked about is original ideas versus things based on like based on other material or, you know, remakes as we get all the time these days. So 
I mean, Grand Budapest, our winner, is kind of original. I mean, it is he in the process of making this movie, he came across a writer whose style he ended up being influenced by and calls that part of the inspiration of the movie. But I would say it's as close as you can get to being an original concept. Yeah. Whiplash is original. Birdman is an original concept. Everything else is not right. Imitation game. Boyhood. Oh, yeah. Boyhood. So four. Four of the eight are original concepts, which is actually like not terrible for the Academy. Yeah. What about the ones that we nominated, though? Well, I mean, I I don't know what to say about Lego Movie. I think that counts as an original idea. I mean, it's based on IP, but it's not based on like a book that told that story. Story. Box Catchers, Real Events. Nightcrawler is original. Nightcrawler is original. Big Hero 6 is based on something. Yes. Snowpiercer's a graphic novel. Edge of Tomorrow is a graphic novel. Guardians is a comic book, obviously. How to Drain Your That's Dragon a sequel. Is a so we sequel. only nominated two originals. Damn. I don't care. <laughs> no, I feel good about it. I especially feel good that our final two were both original. Yeah. Uh, so original ideas can win out. They're interesting. They're unlike other stuff you've seen before. That's what we want, isn't it? It is. I feel good about this. This has been a good right, process. We done, we done did it. We really did. I don't know how soon we'll be coming back to the format of adding an entire new field of Academy Awards nominees, but it's been fun. I mean, I feel like partially this is influenced by how recent this year is. So we've seen, we just incidentally had seen a ton of extra movies that we already knew like, oh, I I think I love that more than I'm going to love this thing. But I guess let us know how you feel about this. Was it way too confusing? That's what I was going to say. I hope people were not massively confused. If you have the bracket to refer to, that has to be helping you out. So fingers crossed this all made sense. But if not, let us know where you ended up. Take a picture of your bracket. Share it with us. How did your matchups play out? I'd be interested to see that. I would love to see that. Please send us your brackets and let us know who your winner is. We want to know. What's the winner? Also, let us know. I mean, I don't know how this could possibly be true since we nominated every movie under the sun. But is there something else from 2014 that you would have put in your bracket that we didn't put in ours? Because honestly... When we first created a list of potential things to put on our bracket, it was longer than eight movies. So there are other things mm-hmm. out there worth considering. And we would love to know what they are because maybe we haven't seen them and we should. So what are we talking about next time? Next time, it's the 26th Academy Awards or the films of 1953. So we're taking a, a step back in time. Those nominees are From Here to Eternity, Julius Caesar, the Robe, Roman Holiday, and Shane. How are you feeling about this crop? You seen any of these? It'll be all new movies to me. I've seen Julius Caesar before, but not this particular adaptation, and I've read it, but you know. Sure. I have also read Julius Caesar, but not seen this adaptation, and I have seen Roman Holiday. But other than that, this will all be fresh for moi. Cool. I'm excited to watch From Here to Eternity. I mean, that's an iconic picture. It is. Got a very famous scene. It has such a famous scene. In the meantime, do reach out to us with your thoughts at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. And we have a new website, OscarsWrongPod.com. So check it out. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 